You are listening to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I'm your host, nurse practitioner, Claire O'Brien. In healthcare, we have so many questions about what's trending versus what's actually the truth. So on this show, we're going to get to the bottom of it. It's health, it's wellness, it's beauty, explained by the people who actually know what they're talking about. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dabble Co. Podcast. I am your host, Claire O'Brien, nurse practitioner, and today is another 10 questions. Um, I hope y'all don't get tired of these because now that I've been doing them every other week, um, I it feels weird to talk this much by myself, but here we are. Um, so if, they're, if you're tired of it and it's annoying, just, you know, let me know, or maybe don't because that would hurt my feelings. Anyway, here we go. All right, so... I swear, I say this every time, but it is really funny to me how these groupings of questions come all of a sudden. Like, I don't remember the last time anybody asked about dark under eye circles, and like seven people asked about that this time. So it's very random. Um, Okay, so kind of the gist was, what do I do for under eye circles? Am I too young to be concerned about it? Why do I have these? Where do they come from? So dark under eye circles are probably one of the most difficult things for any aesthetic provider to to deal with. And I think we all would say that it takes essentially the kitchen sink, right? Because dark under eye circles are really complicated. They come from different things. Your facial structure, the thickness of your skin, what does your vasculature look like, you know, just the genetic kind of shape and fat distribution and lymphatic distribution. So dark under eye circles are really complicated. That being said, um, should you be using an eye cream? Yeah. If you're concerned about it at all, then go ahead and start an eye cream. Um, that is definitely part of the arsenal. Even if you're going to get other cosmetic treatments, um, you should definitely be using an eye cream. Is your eye cream alone going to treat the dark circles? Definitely not. Um, but it's, it's part of it. So, um, I, I personally, there are a couple of different families of eye creams. Um, the retinol family is good. And the reason why retinols are good, um, well, you, you want a, one that is specifically formulated for the skin around the eye because the skin around the eye is really thin and really sensitive. It's just different. Um, and, and retinoids are good because they will help thicken the skin around the eye. Um, and then there are also some eye creams with growth factors in them. So I, I personally love skin click has a ret, we, we carry a couple of eye creams, but we have, um, our own brand of a, a retinol eye cream. It's called the intensive eye. It is great. Um, and it's really, really good for fine lines and wrinkles. And then, uh, Neocutis, I would say is probably my, my go-to for the skin around the eye. It's got growth factors in it, um, which should also help thicken up that skin around the eye and hopefully make the vasculature under the eye less prominent and noticeable. Um, some other things, micro needling is really good for that thickening that skin around the eye. Um, PRP or platelet rich plasma, um, is used around the eye often for kind of that same, or just the goal is to, cause, cause if you think about it, like if you put your kind of p- palpate or poke around your, in, your uh, inferior orbital rim, 
an infraorbital or, infra rim right there, um, it's, there's not much, right? Like you, you get to bone like right away. It's not like there's much fat. It's just a really thin area. Um, so any treatment, basically the goal is to thicken up the skin around that area. Um, some people really have really puffy eyes in the morning or just ever. And that's more of a lymphatic issue. So you'll see like gua sha tools are really popular. Um, the jade roller, I think that's really where that came from. I, for me personally, I don't really get puffy. Um, I just, my under eye circles are like crazy dark. You can also get filler under the eye. There's tear trough filler, or even some people will need mid face restoration, like cheek filler, which sounds crazy. If you're like, well, I'm trying to focus on my eyes. Why would they give me under eye? Why would they give me cheek filler? Um, but it just depends on the structure of your face and what the hollowing uh, under your eyes, underneath your eyes looks like. And not everybody is a candidate for tear trough filler honestly. Um, and you want to make sure you go to somebody who's really experienced in eyes, um, because it's, it's just a difficult, um, area to treat for realsies. So under eyes, very difficult, requires all the treatments all the time and it's awful. So I'm sorry. I feel you. I have had microneedling PRP. I've had tear trough filler a couple of times. Um, I, which, I'm a fan of, um, for myself, but I know it's, and I'm, and I've had cheek restoration with filler too. And that was super helpful. I probably, I need to post a before and after of my, um, my cheeks and my under eyes. Cause it's pretty dramatic. Um, especially when I started getting filler, I had just lost like 15 pounds after being on Topamax and I looked like Skeletor. Um, not in a, in a good way. I mean, I looked horrible. This is before I had my surgery, but anyway, so I need to post that because it's kind of comical. Um, next up, a few different people asked about Xeomin or Botox while nursing and or pregnant, um, which is a super interesting question right now because, I mean, I think that this is going to change right now. Kind of the blanket answer is no. However, um, Botox was recently, let's see, maybe, maybe three or four years ago, maybe longer, but in the, in the last like five years, I think Botox has been approved, um, FDA approved for treatment of migraines, treatment and prevention of migraines. And so what's super interesting, I don't know if you guys saw this about Chrissy Teigen, um, recently, so she's pregnant with her third child and apparently she is a Botox migraine person. Um, and she is, she discussed with her doctor and she's going to continue to get Botox while, um, she's pregnant. So, you know, I think if we're being just super honest, the mechanism of how Botox works should not have anything to, to do with your, you know, your fetus or your baby. Um, it shouldn't, you know, cross the placenta or, and it, it shouldn't get into your milk, but I think there's just, you know, nobody's going to do that study We're they're just not going to do it. So basically when, when that, when something like that happens and we're not willing to study it on pregnant women, because for the most part, it's been a cosmetic treatment. Then after, you know, Botox has only been around for 20 years, which is not that long, like in the medicine world. So after 20 years, basically what, what happens is like a people would get pregnant and say, oh my God, well, I just got Botox, you know, last week. And so as we have more retroact retroactive data, looking at that basically backwards and saying, well, all these people got Botox while they were pregnant or nursing and it turned out fine. Um, 
anyway, that may give us more data in the future. But I think now that it's more and more approved for um, medical use, there will be a lot even more data um, more data for on pregnant and nursing women. Um, I do know just, you know, in injector land, um, it, breastfeeding is, is different. That really is a conversation that I think more and more injectors are having with women and just saying, um, here are the potential risks and we don't, you know, we don't really know, but we also think that it should be fine. Um, and it, anyway, that's a conversation you can have with your injector, but for now, it's a no unless you're using it for a medical reason. So I'll be super interested to see if um, the migraine thing, you know, makes it more widely used during pregnancy or nursing. Um, this is a really good question. So why don't people trust physician knowledge anymore? I That is such a hard question to answer. I think it's kind of multifactorial. So, you know, I think things used to be different. One, that there used to be more of a veil on information and how information was obtained and who had that information, right? So like if you think about, say, my parents' generation in medical school, like my dad's generation, or I mean, and there's plenty of people in between the age of like 70 and 30, but I'm just thinking about like my dad, to learn and study, everything was in the library and in the hospital and you couldn't just go like in the physical medical university library, like not the regular public library. There's, you know, specific books and publication that only those people had access to. And so really to learn all of that, you had to be physically present for all of that. And I think what's happened now is that everybody has access to some level of information, even though they don't know that it's not the same level of information I think there's a lot of I don't I don't even know how to answer this I, like mistrust I guess because well and for one some of it is totally justified like there were you know studies done incorrectly and um you know secrets kept veil like I said kind of veils kept a long time ago and and yes that kind of persists in in every field not just medicine now there's always going to be you know information that's that's not accurate or not good but the reason i think it's so prevalent now is because i i really genuinely think that people believe that they have the same information that we have um and that because of that they can make a, you know, a decision that's just as informed with or without any discussion with a provider, um, which is really scary. You know, I think about like the, when the CDC report came out and people were just taking it and running with it and saying that, um, you know, 6%, only 6% of COVID deaths were actually from COVID. And it's like, that's the kind of thing that's terrifying because that's not what it means at all. And, and medical, you know, Edna talked about this last week, but medical data and medical statistics are so difficult and so hard to understand. Um, and, and what happens is you get people having a, a little bit of information or not the whole picture, or they, they think they understand it completely and they really don't. Um, and anecdotal things get spread of, well, they told me not to do this and I, you know, I did it anyway and I was fine. I think people take that kind of information and run with it. So I don't know. I mean, it's honestly, it's a more complicated answer than I think I've even just given. Um, I think there's just, there's a lot. I think some of it is justified and then 
some of it is just kind of the way things are now because there is so much information. Um, and, and the question is then how do we get that trust back? Um, I think that we have to acknowledge that people, patients aren't just going to blindly trust us anymore. Um, and really get to the root of why this person isn't trusting me on this particular issue, you know, and, and a lot of that is based in fear and anxiety. Um, cause there's so much, there's so much fear and anxiety being created about, about a million different things in social media. And, you know, when we, I think when we oversimplify things and don't, sit down and that this is part of it too. We don't have as much time to sit down and explain things to people as we would like, you know? I mean, we now for the most part most providers are on a system where um, you know, you have to see a certain amount of patients to make a certain amount of money. Um, and we're not really able to bill as much on time as we used to be. Like previously you could bill somebody for differently for taking 30 minutes with them versus taking 10 minutes. Whereas now, if you're seeing the the 10 minute person for the same reason as you're seeing the 30 minute person, that's it doesn't matter. You're getting paid the same either way, which doesn't really make sense, right? If you think about it. Um, But you've got to up your numbers of patients. And so we're certainly less incentivized to spend that extra time with people, um, which is hard. It's hard. Nobody wants to practice like that. Like we, we'd all love to spend, well, I mean, most of us would love to spend, um, ample amounts of time with people, but that's just not, that's just not, not possible. Um, so that's, I think that's part of it is that we don't have the time or take the time to, to really sit down and explain things. So I think that's going to be a huge part of, of being able to get things back is more open and honest dialogue and, um, you know, hopefully taking the time with people when, when you can. Um, complicated question. Hard-hitting. Hard-hitting journalism right here. How or is it possible to prevent stretch marks? Oh, man. These questions are kind of bummers. I picked kind of bummer questions and I'm sorry, but I guess I'm the one that picked them, but here we are. So sort of maybe, but also maybe not. There are some people who are just going to get stretch marks, like regardless of what you do. Um, it's just kind of inherited. And and so some folks are just going to get them and some folks are not, are just going to be kind of lucky in that way. Um, if anything prevents stretch marks, it's it's hydration, maybe hyaluronic acid. They've looked at treatment with retinoids. You can't use a retinoid if while you're pregnant. So that stretch marks are really hard. Um, yeah, is it possible? Ugh, I don't. That's so hard. Uh, probably not. Honestly, if you're gonna get them for the for the most part, what I've read and what I understand. I actually answered this question last week for my friend Lauren, um, who does pregnancy fertility, um, nutritionist stuff. And she was writing an article and, um, yeah, it's, it's just hard. And then there's the treatments after basically everything that's been studied and tested has really not been effective. So that's depressing answer. You're welcome. What are some differences between PAs and NPs? This is a great question. So PA is physician assistant. NP is a nurse practitioner. Um, 
I would say the main difference is the point of entry and then in the training. Um, so nurse practitioners are nurses or RNs first. We have a bachelor's in nursing and then get a master's or a doctorate in, in nursing as well um, and specialize typically there are multiple specialties within um, nurse practitioner, master's or doctorate level coursework. So you can be a family nurse practitioner, adult, um, pediatric, acute care, psychiatry, women's health, midwifery. Did I say psychiatry? Um, maybe maybe one or two others, but those are the main ones. Um, and so your coursework is more geared towards what your specialty is going to be. So we typically work as nurses um, before we get our NP or while. That's what I did. I worked um, as a nurse while I was getting my NP. I was full-time med surge at the VA and was um, full-time in NP school. It was a blast. Um, and then PAs, uh, it's a master's as well. And they are required to do a certain amount of like clinical hours before um, so they can get those hours being like a tech on the floor or an EMT. Um, those are kind of the two main ways that people get their hours. And then it's um, typically, I think it's a two, believe it's a two year program for them. Whereas NP can be two or three. It just depends on what you're doing. Um, it, the training for, for PAs, they're trained more under the medical model, which is a little bit different than the nursing model. So the nursing model is, this, I, I mean, this is me speaking out of surely what I've like heard and understand of the two. So, I mean, I hope I'm not offending either group of PAs or NPs. My, I personally am an NP, obviously. And then my husband actually ran or was the medical director for the PA school at MUSC for several years. We wholeheartedly believe in and love um, both groups of people. So I you know, this is not like one's better than the other. So basically after your schooling and training, we can essentially function in the same exact way. Um, it depends on the state though. Like a PA and an NP in South Carolina may have different rules than a PA and an NP in Georgia. So let's say the laws may be more in favor of PAs in Georgia and they're more in favor in of NPs in South Carolina. Um, it, it just totally depends state by state what your your laws are. And that, I mean, it's a little bit silly. They should probably be just the same. Um, if we were smart, we would like lobby for ourselves together. But that's another story. Um, so, yeah, it, it's once the training and schooling is over, we can both function in basically the same way and then little subtle differences depending on the state. So that's that. Okay, thoughts on care of ritual and supplement companies, etc. So, you know, I think this could be its own like hour long podcast. Um, and I, I'm trying to think of who would be the best person to have on to talk about all of this. I don't know, I'm gonna have to think on that one. Because if people, the supplement com industry is massive. I mean, like billions and bajillions of dollars, maybe trillion. The wellness industry itself is is multi-trillion dollar industry. Um, so for the most part, Americans, just speaking on Americans, are not deficient in many vitamins. Um, all of our food, our salt, 
is fortified, right? So like if you eat a piece of bread, unless you like made that bread yourself, it's fortified with different things. If you eat a bowl of cereal, it's fortified. I mean, everything's fortified. Our milk is fortified. Our, you know, salt is fortified with iodine and it's just, it's just so many things. So most of us are not deficient in many things except for um, vitamin D is a big one that we can be particularly deficient in. So a lot of just generic multivitamins, you're, you're, and you're going to excrete. So here's the other thing is you're going to, to excrete or pee out if you're taking way too much of something or taking more than you need then your body's just going to find a way to excrete it. And if it can't excrete it, then you've got a problem. So if it depends on what, it depends on what, if the, wow, it depends on if the vitamin is um, fat soluble or, or, you know, or non-fat soluble. So there's different things that can happen. Like, let me say, okay, vitamin C or calcium, for example. So if you take too much calcium, you can actually give yourself um, like kidney stones. You can confuse your parathyroids. Same with with vitamin D. And then like vitamin C, you can you can definitely cause actual problems if you take too much of a vitamin. Um, and so I I think honestly in general that a lot of gen- general supplements or multivitamins are probably, you know, more, you probably don't need to spend the money. Now, are there certain supplements that have been shown to be helpful for certain conditions? Absolutely. So if you have a particular condition, let's take migraines, for example. Magnesium has been shown to be helpful in the prevention of and treatment of migraines. So am I magnesium deficient? Probably not. Do I take magnesium? Yes, I do. So, you know, if you're treating something specific, I say go for it. Um, Like also during cold and flu season, do we, my husband and I, my children take a little bit of extra vitamin C and zinc? Yes. The reason we take zinc um, is because if you are zinc deficient, then the virus actually has more of an opportunity to replicate um, faster and stronger, like say, you know, if you get the flu or something. So, you know, there's certain little subtleties with, within that. But I think that vitamin companies like Care-of and Ritual, I, I, I think it's fairly expensive for what it is. Um, I will say this, if we take um, any supplements or not if but when we take any supplements we use a company called thorn Um, they have really really cool um, ways of vetting their medical research they're actually heavily involved with the mayo clinic Um, they're really i would say evidence-based and science-based supplement company and um that is where we get the curcetin and, and zinc that we are currently taking. And that's now actually in the COVID protocol for Mayo. So just something interesting. Um, yeah, thorn is a great one. So back to the NP thing. Somebody asked about what do I think about NPs having full authority? This is going to be unpopular with maybe some NPs. Um, I don't... I, so... I think just having a blanket full authority ruling would not be wise. And 
do I think there are plenty of NPs that are capable of using their full authority wisely, taking care of patients in like a primary care setting and, you know, functioning in that role at the, you know, their, at their peak capacity? Yes, absolutely do. And I think this law is, or this ruling is particularly needed for a rural setting where we just are in total shortage of healthcare providers. Unfortunately, what it's not going to be like that. So it would be basically state by state. Um, and, you know, if, if we get it in South Carolina, it doesn't matter if you're in the middle of Charleston or Greenville or if you're out in, you know, Williamsburg County where there's like one, like two doctors there, you know. So what I wish, what I wish I could see is, is some way for people to apply for it and, and prove that you're in a situation where you need full authority. Like say, like I think in Williamsburg County, which is the poorest and most uneducated, no resources County in South Carolina, I don't think they have an OB out there and you're not going to get an OB to, to go out there. It's out in the middle of nowhere, just I mean, that's the best I can say. In the middle of nowhere. We have a farm there. It's where my um, father-in-law is from. And so we love, you know, Williamsburg County. But the, that's just, it is what it is. But you could probably get, maybe get a midwife, you know, if you paid them well to go and do clinic out there a few days a week. But they're going to need a little bit more um, autonomy. So I, I think it would be cool to see that some sort of application process and it could be, you know, approved or denied based on almost like a certificate of need. I mean, that's how, what we have now for like freaking CT scanners, which is, you know, like we can say who does or does not get to have a CT scanner. Like what, it can't be that hard to say you do or do not get to have full authority. And I, I say that as, so my father is a physician, my brother is a physician, my husband is a physician. I obviously am an APP or a nurse practitioner. I, the The training is not the same. I mean, it's just not the same. Like, we're, you're never going to convince me that our training is as good or a, as much as a physician. That doesn't mean we can't get extra training, boo-coodles of training. That doesn't mean that I can't be more knowledgeable than a physician about something. Like, when I would talk to my husband about ENT stuff when I was working in ENT, Oh my God, it was comical because he'd say things and I'd be like, well, that's not correct at all. You know, so yes, you can get, you know, incredibly more knowledgeable and about certain things. And so, however, like if you just give us all blanket full authority, um, I don't know. I, I see, I foresee that personally becoming a, a problem. I think there are also plenty of NPs and PAs that I know and have seen and have worked with and have witnessed um, put themselves in a position of knowing more than they do. Um, I think it takes a lot of humility to know what you don't know. I think it takes a lot of maturity and even, you know, more training and experience. I think the more experience you get, the more you realize what you don't know. Um, So yeah, that's, that was, that's my thought on that. That's kind of a long answer for that. I just, um, yeah, I, I, if we all had full authority, then, I mean, what's the purpose? I don't know. That's, please don't at me. I'm sorry. It's just one man's opinion. Um, okay, next, more fun question. Benefits of vitamin C serum. So 
Vitamin C is one of the three products. If you're going to use anything in this world um, for anti-aging, you need to be using vitamin C in the morning, sunscreen, and then a retinoid at night. So the reason we use vitamin C, it is super powerful antioxidant. Um, yes, you need to be take either consuming enough vitamin C in your diet with tons of fruits and vegetables, um, or you know taking a supplement. I don't think is bad for your skin. Um, that's how we reform collagen. Vitamin C and zinc actually are, are pretty critical components of wound healing as well. Um, but the benefits topically are definitely there. It's a crazy powerful antioxidant. It's anti-inflammatory. It essentially is fighting the oxidative stress on your skin, which is part of how we age. Um, so it's, it really, there's nobody that wouldn't benefit from a vitamin C. Now, do you have to be a little bit careful about what kind you use? Yes, you do. And the reason for that is a lot of vitamin C formulations have vitamin E in it, um, which if you're a person who breaks out, vitamin E is not great for you, especially depending on the, the strength and the form. And um, a stronger percentages of vitamin C are not the best for, for folks who break out. So you'll see it. What you want is the 10% ascorbic acid. Um, there are 15% and 20% formulations. So like, for example, the skin clicks, vitamin C is 20%. It is wonderful and it feels amazing. I do not use it because I am like crazy acne prone and I just cannot, I have to stick with a 10% vitamin C. Um, and then probably the two most famous, which I think are, um, a little bit, overpriced and overrated. I'm sorry. It's conceuticals. Um, are the Floritin CF and the CE Ferulic. Um, and if you break out, you definitely don't want to be using the CE Ferulic. So yeah, vitamin C, SPF, even if you did nothing else, I mean, wash your face for heaven's sake. You're an adult. It's just really not that hard. Wash your face in the morning and then put on your vitamin C, and then put on your SPF, and you are good to go. And then you like, wash your face again at night and use a retinoid. Um, it can get obviously more complicated than that, but just for people who have like zero routine. Okay, someone asked, can you give us a script, an easy script for when people say flu shots don't matter? Totally. So even if the flu shot is only, you know, a certain amount of effectiveness that year, which so basically, so there's multiple strains of the flu. And what is happening is we look to, there's this whole committee. Y'all, I don't, wait, when was this? Was this before my podcast? I think it was. Oh my God. What if I could have this due to my podcast? I would die of happiness. So my friend, my friend, Jeff, Hey Mary, my friend, Jeff's dad is like the, the guy at the CDC. Like he is the guy that is like basically in charge of the flu and flu shot. So I actually got to talk to him. Gosh, when was that? Like six months ago? He, they, he was visiting my friends, Jeff and Mary, and I'd asked Jeff a question. He put his dad on the phone. I like almost pooped myself. I was so excited. So I got to talk to this man for like 20 minutes. There is a committee, like a global committee, literally of people all, from groups all over the world who meet multiple times a year and basically look at the trends and the data from let's like we're in America we're looking at the southern hemisphere first because they have winter before we do which also I'm like well who decided their winter was before ours how do we know if ours wasn't before theirs who's to say so we look at their trends and their data and what strains were prevalent and then they make the flu shot based on that but there's still multiple strains in every flu shot and 
So we're, you know, we're kind of hoping that our flu season mimics theirs somewhat. And even if the flu shot is not effective against the particular strain that comes that year, we know, like fact, science proven, that people who have been vaccinated against the flu have a better outcome if even if they get the flu that year. So it's and and flu, you know, it's been so wild, like watching everybody compare COVID to the flu, like saying that the flu is not a big deal. I'm sorry, the flu killed 80,000 people in America last year during flu season. And we just kind of don't talk about it because yet the mortality rate of the flu is, is quite low. Like it's, I think it's 0.01%. Um, it's feel free to fact check me because I'm just guess I'm pretty sure it's 0.01 ish percent. So that's super low, but millions and millions of people get the flu every year. And so we still have like, that's how many people get the flu. If we have, you know, 50 million people get the flu, then, you know, 50, that ends in 50,000 deaths or whatever. Y'all please don't make me do math again. I can't just, just, this is, I'm using this as a, like a metaphor. This is not actual facts, right? So the point is that the flu kills a shit ton of people every year. And we, we've now gotten so used to that. And so many people get the flu and then are totally fine that we just have, you know, moved on about our, our normal lives. But like the flu kills lots of children, hundreds and hundreds of children every year. The flu kills all the old people. I mean, we know that, but like, you know, I, I, and when I was working in ENT, I had several trach patients that were like young, healthy people got the flu, got a adult acute onset respiratory distress syndrome and like had to get a trach and we're on the freaking ventilator and never now they have a trach forever I mean from the flu so it is the flu is such a big deal and we've just never treated it that way um well they used to in the olden times you know it's like people when people are like oh, god I love that meme and I haven't seen it in forever what do people do before vaccines it's like well they died Karen they their children died you know I mean it was like people used to have six children because like half of them would die it's crazy so if you've been following DabbleCo and me for any length of time, you know that I'm super careful with anybody that I endorse or any partnership or brand here. So the goal is always to share evidence-based medicine and things backed by actual science with our audience and our followers. So I was thrilled when BetterHelp approached me to do a partnership with them. So thank you so much to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode. BetterHelp is an online platform that connects you to counseling in an incredibly convenient and affordable way, which I think are the two biggest barriers to counseling, access and affordability. So I was actually really surprised when I looked up their rates for counseling. They were a third of what I feel like I've ever heard and what I've personally paid. Um, it solves both of the problems with literally the click of a button on the internet. So I have personally seen the benefits of counseling. I know firsthand how important it is, and I know it plays a crucial role in mental health. So check them out, and they will know that I sent you, and you'll get 10% off your first month of counseling if you head to betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Um, so it's super easy, betterhelp.com slash dabbleco. Thanks, guys. So flu shot, simple answer. Even if the flu shot is not effective at the partic- against the, that as effective as we want it to be at the particular strain that is in predominantly um, prevalent that year, we know that people that have been vaccinated against the flu do significantly better than people that weren't. So it's very easy. 
Um, I will end on a happy note. Um, that's my new goal to end on a nice note. So five favorite date night spots. And I'm assuming this is for Charleston because that's what I did it for. Okay. I will tell you. So we, my husband and I live in Mount Pleasant. Um, we both lived, you know, downtown through school and everything. So we're like super familiar with downtown, super comfortable with it. Um, we have probably two in Mount Pleasant just depends on what we feel like doing. We, we, I don't know. There's so many new restaurants in Charleston. I'm hesitant to try a new place until I've heard from multiple people that it's really good because things come and go and it's so, it's expensive. And so it's, it's really frustrating to go to like $150 dinner and just be like, meh, that was pretty good, but we should have gone to, you know, blah, blah, blah. So we have several tried and true absolute favorites. Um, Leon's, if we're ever in a place where we can't agree on anything, we will just go to Leon's because we both love it. It's delicious. I feel like at Leon's, you can have as fancy or as casual a meal as you want. If you want to sit outside and have like five rosés and like fried chicken and a hush puppy, you can. If you want to sit inside and have, well, not anymore, but one day if you'd like to sit inside and have like a glass of wine and a, a fish and Brussels sprouts and whatever, you can do that too. We love Leon's. My favorite is the Siam salad. Um, we always get Brussels sprouts and hush puppies. I don't even like gin and tonic. They have frozen gin and tonic and it's delicious. Um, if we're staying in Mount Pleasant, we'll go to Nico. As I mentioned on my last podcast, we love Nico, especially now that Ed has watched them make everyone who enters the restaurant, wash their hands with soap and water. Um, so Nico kind of, kind of the same thing. Like you could have a fairly casual meal at Nico or you can get like a steak or whatever. They have great, um, sides and vegetables, good fish, a really good steak. Um, their menu changes a decent amount. So I don't want to like say things that they don't have, but they do always have baked Alaska. And every time they bring it out, I'm like, is that going to be good? And every time it is so good. Um, downtown, we love Le Farfalle. It is, I think one of Charleston's most underrated restaurants and it's in this old Vickery spot. So it's, I think, cause it's kind of hidden. Um, you can't really see it from any major street. You have to really know where you're going to get there. It's Italian. They have this fancy hummus that they have some name for it. I don't know, but it, I mean, it's hummus and the most incredible bread ever. They have a really, really pretty little outdoor courtyard. Um, just really good Italian. And I'll tell y'all too, last year we went and they're like, oh, it's truffle season. And I mean, we both like the flavor of truffle. I don't think I had ever had a fresh actual truffle. So it's like, $50 for basically what feels like half a mushroom, right? And you're you're like, is this real life? Is this happening? But we love truffles. We were on date night, whatever. And it came with fresh pasta that they toss in this giant wheel of cheese. <laughs> that, was, that was one of the best things I've ever put in my mouth. I mean, it was, I like haven't stopped thinking about it. Lovely for folly. Um, out on Isle of Palms, we also love... <gasps> Oh, gosh. Oh, I forgot this one. Oh, but we haven't done it in so long. Okay, so I was going to say Cota del Pesce on Isle of Palms. Also a hidden gem. Um, it's like above like Banana Joe's or something, but it looks out over the ocean. Really delicious seafood slash a little bit of Italian food. Okay, their sister restaurant downtown is Trattoria Luca. If you want to just have one of the best meals of your life, life, loves, can't believe I forgot. Sorry, I kind of have the hiccups too. I can't believe I forgot about this. Okay. Trattoria Luca on Monday nights, they do family night. And it's like, I think $41 a person, at least it used to be. 
and you go and you don't order, they just bring you stuff. So they bring you like a hot appetizer, a cold appetizer, maybe three or four appetizers, but like a couple of cold, a couple of hot. They bring you a pasta course, a main course, which will be fish or maybe chicken. And you're like, oh, chicken, boo. Like the best chicken you've ever put in your mouth. And then a dessert, which is usually the budino. It it will be the best $41 of food you have ever spent your money on in your life. And that actually is five spots. I'm going to also, I have to give one more because I kind of forgot about Trattoria Luca and I felt like was saying Coda and I had to say that one. Okay. Wooden grain in Mount Pleasant. Again, so random, like in a strip mall, kind of like Coda del Pesce, but the best pizza on planet earth. And it's also a raw bar. So if you have somebody with you that doesn't really want a heavy meal or they don't really want pizza, they can get like amazing, um, you know, like tuna, tuna tartare or, you know, shrimp cocktail or whatever. It's owned by the, the Owens dining group, which is like Langdon's, um, Langdon's and Opal, which are also really, really good, really good restaurants in Mount Pleasant, but we love wooden grain. So that was it. I hope that helps. Um, we love the food in Charleston. I will miss it very much. All right. As always, if you liked the episode, please rate, subscribe, um, give us feedback. This is how people find the podcast, share it. Super helpful. I want to hear from you guys. Um, I want to know who you want to see as a guest on the podcast, what you want to hear talked about next, and I'll see you next week. Thanks. Bye.